Welcome to Radar Contact, the audio show that teaches pilots how to speak professionally and with confidence to air traffic control. And now, here's your host, airline pilot, author, and host of ATCCommunication.com, Jeff Canarish. If you've been following this show for a while, you know I have been harping on the importance of declaring an emergency with ATC when you need to resolve a situation that could jeopardize flight safety. The reason I am on my soapbox about this issue is because many pilots have told me they would hesitate to declare an emergency for some situations because they feared a follow-up investigation from the FAA. In many cases, pilots have said they worried that if they declared an emergency with ATC and the FAA discovered their problem was not an actual emergency, they could face penalties. Today, Let's talk about what you think has to happen for a situation to be called an emergency. Let's look at some different situations. Some will be obvious emergencies. Others will be gray areas, setups that you may or may not think justify declaring an emergency. Here's the first situation. You are cruising somewhere over the Midwest. You are receiving VFR flight following with Kansas City Center. All of a sudden, you think you smell smoke in the cockpit. Maybe it's just your imagination. Or maybe a farmer in the field below is burning the leftover vegetation from a harvested crop and the smoke is rising up to your altitude. After another minute, you're certain you smell smoke. You look down and you see no burning fields on the ground. Now you can see white smoke curling out from the bottom of your instrument panel. Thinking this is probably the result of an electrical short you start pulling circuit breakers to try and remove the short. Despite your attempts, the smoke intensifies. Here's my question to you. Would you declare an emergency at this point with Kansas City Center? Think about that, and we'll come back to the situation later. It's a new day, you're in a new airplane, and you're out for a Sunday flight, cruising around the countryside about 30 miles south of your home airport, which is tower-controlled As you bank left and right to look at the people fishing in boats on the river below, you notice a distinct looseness in the control yoke that you have never felt before. A moment later, the control yoke starts vibrating. You hear a banging sound and a movement to your right causes you to look at the right wing. The right aileron is flapping up and down in the wind, apparently disconnected from the control yoke. When you try banking now, the right aileron keeps flapping on its own and the airplane banks very sluggishly. You slow down to test the controllability of your airplane and discover the slower you fly, the less responsive the airplane is in the roll axis. When you get in contact with the control tower at your home field, would you declare an emergency? Again, think about that and we'll come back to it. New day, new airplane. You're cruising at 8,000 feet this time over flat, open farmland while under VFR flight following with Indianapolis Center. Suddenly, your single-engine aircraft starts running rough. You go through your troubleshooting checklist, which includes switching fuel tanks. Despite your best efforts, the engine continues to run rough, so you make a turn for the nearest airport. Halfway through the turn, the engine quits. You try to restart, but the engine will not come back to life. At this point, would you declare an emergency with Indianapolis Center? Think about it, and we'll come back to it. Okay, 
Let's back up. In the first scenario, you have an electrical fire that will not quit, despite your attempt to isolate the equipment that is causing the fire. I don't think you or anyone else would disagree that an onboard fire demands that you declare an emergency with ATC. Declaring an emergency in this case will cause ATC to help you get to a runway as quickly as possible, and ATC will also ensure that an airport's fire department is on standby and there to meet you when you land. The second scenario I described in which the controllability of your aircraft is compromised definitely justifies declaring an emergency. When control of your aircraft, especially at landing airspeed, is in doubt, you need the full cooperation of ATC to help you get on the ground safely. What can ATC do for you? Again, provide fire and rescue services on the ground. ATC can also move everyone else out of your way so you have as much maneuvering room as you need to line up with a runway to land. ATC will also permit you to land on any runway you need, which in this case should be the longest, widest runway in your area. I don't think any pilot would hesitate to declare an emergency in this case. In our last scenario, your failed engine means you are about to make a dead stick landing somewhere. It may be on a prepared surface runway, or it may be on an open farm field. In either case, you're coming down without any option to go back up if you don't like your original choice of landing spots. Of course you're going to declare an emergency in this situation to activate rescue services. By this point, you may be wondering, what's the big deal? These situations are so cut and dried, they really don't challenge your judgment. The need to declare an emergency in each case is patently obvious. Fair enough. Try these on for size. It's autumn in the United States, and you're on a sightseeing flight to look at the changing colors of the leaves over a forest. It also happens to be bird migration season, so you can guess what's coming next. As you cruise around the countryside, you notice large flocks of birds heading south, and boom! A large bird hits the engine cowl of your aircraft. A fraction of a second later, boom! Another bird hits the forward windscreen on the right side and causes a large vertical crack in the plastic. There's blood and guts all over the right half of the windscreen, almost completely obscuring your view out that side. However, the good news is your aircraft still seems to be running smoothly. You have a perfect view out the windscreen forward and to the left. Really, other than some bird parts on your aircraft, everything is working normally. As you head back towards your home airport, which is tower controlled, you think to yourself, should I declare an emergency with tower? How would you answer that question? Think about it and we'll come back to it. Here's a new situation. You are almost at the end of a very long cross-country flight. The last part of this flight is over Lake Erie, one of the Great Lakes in the United States. From your cruising altitude of 5,000 feet, the body of water looks so large it seems like you're over the ocean. You had been switching back and forth between your aircraft's right fuel tank and left fuel tank at regular intervals to keep the airplane in balance. Halfway across the lake, you switch from the left tank which currently indicates a quarter tank of fuel remaining, to the right tank, which indicates between one quarter and one half of a tank of fuel remaining. Shortly after you switch from the left tank to the right tank, you recheck the fuel gauge for the right side, and you see the indicator is sitting on the empty mark. You look at the right wing and see no indication of a fuel leak, such as fuel streaming from the trailing edge. 
Based on this observation, you believe the right fuel gauge may have failed. But to be safe, you switch back to the left tank where the fuel gauge is still working. That one quarter tank of fuel on the left side should be just enough to get you to your destination. However, the headwinds are increasing. Of course, you could fix this by landing right now if you are not over the lake. The water underneath you means you have no choice but to continue to your destination, which happens to be a tower-controlled airport near the shoreline. So, given all the information you've got in front of you, would you declare an emergency in this case? Think about it, and let's move on to our next scenario. You are out practicing basic flight maneuvers. Takeoff was uneventful, but the gusty surface winds made the liftoff and climb out kind of rough. As you begin a practice steep turn, you notice the aircraft's trim wheel seems resistant to movement. It seemed fine on the ground and after you took off from your home airport, which happens to be an uncontrolled field. You try moving the trim wheel through a wider range, and as you trim nose up, the wheel stops moving. You try to trim nose down again, but the wheel will not move. It's frozen in place with significant nose-up trim acting on the elevator. Fortunately, you're able to overcome the out-of-trim position with continuous forward pressure on the control yoke. You think to yourself, well, this isn't so bad at cruise airspeed. You can handle this, and the control wheel should be even easier to control at landing airspeed. You start a turn towards home, working your way around an airport traffic area for a tower-controlled airport between you and your home field. Are you making the right decision to continue to your uncontrolled home field, or should you get in contact with the nearby tower, declare an emergency for this situation, and land at the controlled airport? Keep that question in mind, and we'll come back to it in a moment. Okay, let's back up to our first scenario in this series. You have taken two bird strikes. The first bird hit your engine cowl but did not affect the engine or the controllability of your airplane. In essence, nothing changed except there was a mess on the front of your aircraft. The second bird strike cracked your windscreen and partially obscured your view to the front and to the right. However, you have a perfect view forward and to the left. You don't seem to be in any immediate danger. The situation is stable and does not even require you to land immediately. If you're a good storyteller, you can convince yourself that you can land without any complications. Aircraft control is not affected, and you can see out well enough to fly a left-hand pattern to a landing. Your inner storyteller may convince you an emergency is not necessary. Situation number two puts you over a large body of water with no option but to continue straight ahead to an airport. Although fuel is low in your left tank and the headwind is increasing, your right tank probably has plenty of fuel remaining. All that's wrong is the right fuel gauge is faulty, you think. You switch back to the left tank just as a precaution, but the quantity of fuel in the tank is barely enough to get you to an airport, especially with the stronger headwind. Your inner storyteller may convince you that if it looks like fuel in the left tank will not be sufficient to get you all the way to the airport on shore, you can always switch back to the right tank on the assumption it still has fuel in it. An emergency declaration with ATC seems like it may be the wrong call. What if you declare an emergency and then discover after landing there was plenty of fuel in the right tank? In the last scenario, 
Although your aircraft's trim wheel is stuck in a nose-up trim position, you aren't having much trouble overcoming the out-of-trim force. You know as you slow for landing, the nose-up trim position will exert even less force on the yoke, making the aircraft easier to handle. As long as you land on your very first attempt, and do not attempt to initiate a go-around at high power, everything should work out okay. You're a good pilot. You can certainly make a good landing on your first attempt, even in gusty wind conditions. Declaring an emergency at this point seems like an overreaction. Okay, let's step away from the rationalizations we've just told ourselves in each of the scenarios and look at what the Aeronautical Information Manual has to say on the subject. The AIM says most pilots will declare an emergency, quote, when they are faced with distress conditions such as fire, mechanical failure, or structural damage, end quote. Those are the cut-and-dried situations we covered in the first part of our discussion. The AIM goes on to say, quote, However, some are reluctant to report an urgency condition when they encounter situations which may not be immediately perilous, but are potentially catastrophic, end quote. You'll notice in each of the scenarios in the second set I presented to you, there was no immediate danger. You had a bird strike that did not affect aircraft power or controllability, and there was enough visibility through the windscreen to navigate to a landing. In the second scenario, you had what seemed to be a faulty fuel gauge, but enough fuel remaining to continue to a landing. In the last scenario, you had an aircraft trim problem that was easily overcome with a little muscle power. None of these scenarios were immediately life-threatening, but each had the potential to disintegrate into serious trouble. Consider flying into an airport traffic pattern with half of your view from the cockpit wiped out by bird guts. Can you imagine all the potential setups for a disaster in this circumstance? If I were in this situation, I'd declare an immediate emergency without hesitation, not because I'm in immediate danger, but because that huge blind spot in the cockpit will not permit me to see conflicting traffic approaching from my right side in the air or on the ground. Also, when was the last time you tried a landing with 50% of your view out of the cockpit obscured? I would want ATC to give me priority for the runway of my choice and move everyone else out of the way. I want to concentrate on making a safe landing without fear of causing a conflict with any other aircraft. After landing, I would clear the runway, but I'm definitely not taxiing when I can't see every potential obstacle on the ground. So yes, I would definitely declare an emergency for this situation. For the second scenario, I would declare an emergency stating emergency fuel because I don't have enough information in front of me to determine whether I can make it to an airport in a normal sequence or landing. If I guess wrong and ATC delays my landing for traffic, there is a potential to run out of gas before my wheels touch pavement. In the last scenario, my aircraft's out-of-trim condition is a black-and-white controllability problem. True, I can manage the situation under normal circumstances so I'm not in immediate danger. Even the gusty winds might pr not present the problem some pilots may consider them to be. But what happens if I fly into my uncontrolled airport's pattern, attempt to land, and someone cuts in front of me during the landing phase? Has no airplane ever entered a runway for takeoff with another aircraft on short final for landing? 
Has no aircraft ever cut in front of you on base as you've lined up for final approach? Those circumstances would put me in a situation where I have to go around to avoid another aircraft, and I'm fighting that nose-up trim at full power with increasing airspeed close to the ground. Again, again, it's the potential for disaster that dictates the emergency. Personally, I would head towards a controlled airport and declare an emergency with tower for controllability problems. Tower would ensure that I have direct access to the longest runway, most closely aligned with the wind. More importantly, Tower would keep all other aircraft out of my way so I can make my first attempt at landing the one that gets me on the ground. If you carry the prejudice that declaring an emergency is a risky proposition, I believe you are placing yourself in a much greater position of risk than you might imagine. When encountering a gray area in your aircraft that is not immediately dangerous, watch out for that inner storyteller that convinces you everything will work out okay. I'm not saying you should doubt your own abilities. You need confidence to handle a shaky situation in your airplane. I am saying don't let your confidence in your ability create a lie that convinces you an emergency declaration is unnecessary. Even if you misinterpret your situation as dangerous, and it turns out later analysis shows the problem you thought you had didn't really exist, declaring the emergency is still the right way to go. There are few situations in life where you can reliably use the word always. I'm going to use it here. As long as you as pilot and command, are concerned for the safety of your flight. Whether later analysis proves there was really no reason to be concerned, you are always correct. You are always correct to declare an emergency with ATC. If you have any doubts about what I just said or any of the scenarios we discussed previously, please write to me at jeff at atccommunication.com. I'd love to hash it out with you. A Radar Vector Direct is a service offered by ATC that allows you to fly directly towards a point via an assigned heading. There are two advantages to a Vector Direct from ATC. First, A Vector Direct steers you to a point you would not be able to reach using onboard navigation equipment. For example, let's say you want to fly towards a VOR. Your navigation radio is not detecting the VOR because you are too far away to receive a navigation signal from the station. ATC can steer you towards that VOR using radar. You can remain on ATC's heading until you are close enough to receive the navigation signal from the VOR. The second advantage is savings in flying distance and fuel consumed by taking a shortcut. For example, let's say today you are flying on Victor Airway 469 headed towards the Elkins Vortac. Elkins is 60 miles ahead. After Elkins, the airway turns northeast towards the Morgantown Vortac for another 40 miles. Can you visualize that? The airway is a dogleg that runs northwest crosses over a vortex, and then turns northeast. Total flying distance from your present position to Elkins and then Morgantown on the airway is 100 miles. 
even though your onboard VOR receiver is not currently detecting the Morgantown Vortac, you may ask ATC for a vector direct Morgantown. Or you may not even have to put in a request. ATC may volunteer to give you the shortcut. Most controllers assume you want to get to your destination by the shortest, quickest route possible. That doesn't mean ATC will always offer you a vector direct. There are a lot of circumstances where this may not be possible, or the controller may be simply too busy to consider it. But just because ATC does not ask you if you would like a vector direct, that does not mean you can't ask for one on your own. Here's how to make the request. Washington Center. Cessna 9130 Delta is requesting a Vector Direct Morgantown. Be sure to say Vector Direct, not just Direct. If you only say Direct Morgantown, the controller will assume that you're picking up Morgantown on your own navigation receiver and will simply clear you to fly Direct Morgantown without giving you a heading. In this case, the controller replies, Cessna 9130 Delta, stand by. This means the controller needs a moment to check to see if a vector direct is even possible. He's looking for traffic conflicts, not only in his control sector, but also in the next sector where the Morgantown Vortec is located. He is also checking to make sure giving you a vector direct will not cause you to fly through any restricted airspace or through adverse weather. If you're on an IFR flight plan, he needs to make sure there is no traffic management initiative in place that requires you to remain on the airway. Without getting too deeply into it, a Traffic Management Initiative, or TMI, is a temporary restriction that requires ATC to keep IFR aircraft on specific routes for smooth traffic flow. Of course, if you're on a VFR flight plan, any TMI in place will not apply to you. The controller comes back to you by saying, Cessna 9130 Delta, say you're heading. You reply, Cessna 9130 Delta is heading 335. Cessna 9130 Delta, turn right, heading 015. When able, proceed direct Morgantown. Cessna 9130 Delta, right, heading 015. When able, direct Morgantown. You make the turn and realize you've just removed 30 miles of flying distance from your route. The controller said you may proceed direct Morgantown when able. This means you should continue on the heading ATC gave to you, but once your navigation radio is receiving a reliable signal from the Morgantown Vortac, you are free to abandon ATC's heading and continue to the Vortac using your own navigation equipment. Pretty slick, right? There's one last point to make here. The reason ATC asked you about your heading before giving you the vector direct is because the controller wanted to know how the winds aloft were affecting your current course. The controller could see you were tracking towards the Elkins Vortac on a heading of 330 degrees. When you told him you were flying a heading of 335 degrees, he knew you had 5 degrees of heading correction, or crab, to the right of course to compensate for the crosswind. When calculating your heading direct to Morgantown, he added in a heading correction of 5 degrees to the right to give you a wind-corrected course to Morgantown. And that, my friend, is how to request a Vector Direct from ATC. ATC may not always be able to offer you a Vector Direct, but when it works out, it can be a time and fuel saver. Give it a try the next time you travel cross-country. 
Here's a secret that's not so secret. Air traffic controllers are human. Big surprise, right? But who knows if that will change in the future? For now, when you speak to someone in an ATC control room, you are speaking to a person with quirks of personality, personal troubles, and other habits that make him a human being, just like you and me. Controllers are selected not only for their ability to manage a high workload, but to do so with consistency and a high level of self-discipline that is matched by very few professions. Like all highly disciplined professionals, an air traffic controller is expected to apply the same standards to every aircraft under his control day in and day out. When he plugs his headset into his controlling station, an air traffic controller is supposed to forget about his personal problems and focus entirely on the task at hand. This change to a narrowly focused mental state is called compartmentalization. On most days, most controllers can leave their problems behind and compartmentalize while on the job. Every once in a while, if you fly long enough, you are going to encounter a controller who is struggling to keep his cool. Maybe that controller just came from a bad day at home. More likely, the controller is under more pressure than usual. Let's say he is working a very busy sector that feeds traffic into and draws traffic out of a major airport. Perhaps bad weather in his sector is adding to his workload. There are thunderstorms popping up everywhere. Every pilot on the frequency wants the controller to help him steer around the storms. Some pilots are complaining the ride is bad at their current altitude and want to bail out to a different altitude. Everybody wants something from the controller and they want it now. All this is going on when you check in on the frequency. The controller does not acknowledge your check-in, so you try again. The controller still does not respond. You try a third time, and this time, the controller snaps. He says, Two aircraft trying to check in at the same time, stand by. You guys are stepping all over each other. No one say anything. I'll get back to you when I need you. Does this sound like some fiction I made up? It's not. I've heard variations of that response on the radio more than once. Here's how I deal with it. Instead of reacting to the controller's cranky response, I relax and take it in stride. Frankly, I'm in no position to do anything about it anyways, so why get worked up? The last thing I would do in this case is take a sharp response from the controller personally. He doesn't know who I am, so why should I take any mean-spirited or sarcastic response personally? An air traffic controller who loses his bearing on the radio is probably just having a bad moment. It will pass. My job is to keep flying safely and stick to the standards of radio communication. Every once in a while, you'll hear a pilot on the radio who has forgotten this simple rule. The pilot will get in a verbal contest with an air traffic controller. At the least, the sparring match accomplishes nothing. At the worst, the radio frequency is tied up with nonsense as two people argue. With all this said, if you ever encounter a controller who barks at you for whatever reason, stick to business on the radio. Respond to clearances by reading back the facts in an even, controlled tone of voice. Don't argue, and especially don't lose your temper. If you have a valid argument and want to voice your opinion, hold it back 
as long as complying with the controller's clearance is legal and safe. And of course, always fly the airplane first. Later, after landing, if you feel you need resolution over the controller's outburst or need to argue about the clearance he gave you, make a phone call to the supervisor of the facility where the controller works. Tell the supervisor why you're calling, being sure to tell him your call sign, plus the time and place where your problem began. He will use this information to determine which controller you were talking to. The supervisor will log your complaint and determine if follow-up action is required. Personally, I have never registered a complaint with an ATC supervisor over a controller's behavior on the radio. The very few times a controller lost this cool on the radio with me, the reason was very apparent. The problem may not have been my fault, but I understood the controller was simply having a bad moment. Hopefully, if you ever encounter a cranky controller, you will remain calm, keep a professional bearing, and respond to the controller's instructions, not his tone. Maintaining a professional bearing on the radio is part of being a competent and safe pilot. Some days, admittedly, it's harder to do this than others, but try your best and keep sight of the bigger picture, and you'll be okay. Before we get to your question of the week, I want to take a moment to thank some of the people I have met on Twitter. These people have been generous enough to retweet many of my messages and answer my questions about ATC. I'm grateful for the retweets and feedback, not because they stroke my ego, but because they put more people in touch with the information they need about ATC. Helping pilots is what this show and the website atccommunication.com is all about. So, with that in mind, a shout-out to Jen Niffer for her retweets. Jen has her own blog called Tales from the Terminal. It's an eclectic mix of well-written stories from an aviation enthusiast who works in an airport. Check it out. Thank you also to Zach Bruce, Lou W., Eddie Trujillo, Stephanie Rust, and Dave Riley, all air traffic controllers who have been generous with their time and helped me answer some very good questions from pilots who listen to the show. Thank you to and this is his Twitter handle, Ken is aero-savvy. A trash hauler, that's a pilot who flies around cargo, whose frequent and remarkable tweets and pictures make me laugh every day. Do check out Ken is aero-savvy on Twitter if you want a funny perspective on being a commercial pilot. There are many others who have made Twitter better by their comments and questions, and I wish I had more time to thank you all in this broadcast. If you want to see what other pilots and air traffic controllers are saying at my Twitter feed, check it out at twitter.com slash ATC underscore Jeff. And now let's get to your question of the week. Everyone knows that you are never required to file a flight plan or get in contact with ATC when flying VFR outside of controlled airspace. Actually, there is an exception. Here's your question. Name the one time you would be required to file a VFR flight plan and remain in contact with ATC even outside of controlled airspace. When you think you know the answer to that question, go to atccommunication.com forward slash answers. There you'll find a complete answer to this week's question along with a full explanation of how that answer was derived. Music for this show is provided by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com on a Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. 
If you're flying this week, I hope you have a great time and beautiful weather. And although I hope it never happens, should you encounter a problem that has the potential, the potential to turn into something that could jeopardize flight safety, declare an emergency. Put ATC in your corner to help you land safely. If your emergency turns out to be something that isn't dangerous, there is absolutely no penalty, no penalty for being cautious and acting in the interest of safety. I'm Jeff Canarish for ATCCommunication.com saying be well, keep in touch, and fly safe.